Yes, indeed, fish communicate, and they all sound pretty different. And it turns out that listening to fish, and you can do that on this new website called fishsounds.net, listening to fish is not only fascinating, but very insightful and extremely useful. Don't take my word for it. Joining me now is Kieran Cox, Liber Eero and, and I, I'm going to get this wrong, Kieran, Liber Eero and NSERC postdoctoral fellow, Earth to Oceans Research Group, Biological Science Department at Simon Fraser University, and one of the people behind the absolutely wonderful fishsounds.net. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's Liber Arrow, but I was uh, very much of the same pronunciation uh, when I first got into the field as well. So welcome to Fishsounds. Liber <laughs> Arrow. Perfect. Um, I mean, just to state the obvious, fish talk. Yeah, and quite a few of them. And this is really what myself and a great group of collaborators have been trying to uh, summarize over the last couple of years. This is a thousand-year-old plus discipline of observations about the kinds of acoustic communication and interactions that fish have. And now we're really pleased to have the first estimate of just how many fish we know contribute many of those noises you just played, but many other to aquatic soundscapes. We'll play some more too, because we've we've put quite a few of them on here. We're not going to make you guess which ones they are. It's not yeah. a skill testing <laughs> skill testing thing. Um, why do they communicate? I mean, this again is a pretty obvious question, but why do they communicate? And 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 why is it so different from between different fish? Well, you know, I mean, fish are in many ways using what is a very important medium. So, for those of us who have been fortunate to spend time around aquatic environments, we know that light is very limited at depth. So if you go below 10 meters, you start to lose certain colors. 20 meters, you're going to start to lose light altogether in many systems. Visibility is very tough. So in most of the waters, if you're lucky enough to live near the Fraser, you can't see the bottom most days, if ever. And so sound becomes really important for managing our move or fish movements through this environment. And it's not surprising that a large number of fishes have evolved ways to interact with soundscapes. So perceive acoustic cues in the environment, someone else enjoying a meal that you might want to steal, or a, a uh, mate making a call that you might want to interact with. And so that's really what we see today is just a large number of fish. We're at about a thousand today, but that number is growing very quickly, have been observed to produce various sounds that interact with those soundscapes. And it's really because there's so much information embedded in sound, right? We're talking on the radio today. This is me yep. reaching many people. And that's true as well in the aquatic environment, if not more so, because sound travels faster in water, as well as other sensory systems being limited. I want to play for you one that I found particularly fascinating was and a fish I've always been fascinated by was the Arctic char. That is an that is really not the sound I expected an Arctic char to make. I don't know why. <laughs> no, certainly, certainly. And this is a neat one because, you know, char, cod, many of these kind of fish, we're very interested in studying them. They're very important to us. And we can use this information to monitor these populations through what we call passive acoustic monitoring. And so that's exactly as it sounds, where we can put down a hydrophone, leave it there, and then get a sense for how many individuals are in the water, what species, because as you pointed out, that's very unique to certain types of fishes. And so that's one of the things we're hoping this database will help people do is improve our knowledge of monitoring species in a way that doesn't involve dragging them up off the bottom or to a boat and sometimes harming individuals. 
I was going to play another one for you. We have the Pacific Herring. We won't have the Pacific Herring. They've gone. They've gone silent for a second. Apparently, the Pacific Herring. You did bring up because I was going to ask you about that. This really, I mean, as as fascinating as it is, and as novel as it is for someone like me, this does really allow you to be able to see, um, to study fish, and, and especially stuff like invasive species and so on. Mm -hmm, absolutely, and you know that's really I think where the frontier of this work is headed is understanding that for a long time we've considered humans impact on the ocean. So how we change soundscapes specifically through noise pollution. And that's very important. But a key part of that dialogue that has been missing in many systems is that two-way interaction, the understanding that fish are contributing sound and maybe our kind of changes to the environment influence how they call or the rate at which they call or how successful their mating are, where we can find them, these kind of things. And so really, you know, the group that I work with we're incredibly excited about the kind of frontier of this work and having this, what we hope to be a very transformative website. It's open access, free to the public. And we really want people to go on and interact with fish sounds, think about what this means to the environment surrounding them and for the scientists out there to use this data to push the field further. I, we have the Pacific herring now. Again, I mean, what what I found so remarkable because I went onto the website, you know, essentially not knowing, you know, in the dark to coin your phrase about being deep underwater, and I was just stunned by how different each of them sounded. I had no idea they would sound so different. I suppose it's natural, um, but it, it is it is remarkable that that all these different fish uh, sound so unique. Mm -hmm. And you know what's really fun about the. Uh... The herring uh, that you just played there is that's actually uh, the acronym for that is uh, farts. It's uh, fast, repetitive ticks, and it's right. actually air that is escaping, uh, very much like air can escape from people. And so right. the coining there is that herrings fart, and they do <laughs> use that behaviorally, and it influences their schooling. But it's kind of a really neat, fun interaction with aquatic soundscapes, which is essentially schools of herring as they move up the BC coast right now are. Are farting, for lack of a better term. <laughs> so I, this is something, again, this may sound ridiculous, but fish, I mean, they travel in these huge schools. Are they all talking at once? It depends. And that's the really unique thing about soundscapes. And it's very much like, you know, the way we use sound. So in certain situations, sound is really important. And certain parts of the day, we're relatively quiet. Some of our behavior, although not what we call active sound production. So I'm talking actively to you right now, I still might make sound. So this is me rummaging around my office. Fish do the same thing. So as they interact with an environment, they may produce passive sounds where they, you know, eat a meal and they chew food and another fish can eavesdrop on that information. Um, or maybe they're talking all the time during mating. So this is many of the choruses that we see. Those of us that live in Vancouver and the surrounding area may have interacted with a fish called the plain fed midshipman. And essentially many of these males, when they're mating, they're humming all night to attract females. So in that case, you know, yes, they are talking constantly, but for the rest of the year, they may be relatively silent um, in many interactions. I think we have one next called the streak gunnard. I'm going to mispronounce that perhaps, but here's what it sounds like. Oh, 
Also silent. <laughs> We're just having some problems with our with our technology. It's not the fish. It's not used to hearing fish speak. We'll get to that in just a second. One story I found fascinating because I've been scuba diving. I spend most of my time looking at my oxygen, thinking if I'm going to make it up to the surface or not. But you were actually calm enough to hear the sounds of fish. It's sort of what sparked your interest in this to some extent. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so, yeah, I've been very lucky with the in- environments that I've been able to travel to and dive because of my initially it was all interest based and it's really what got me into marine ecology in general. And I think if you sit on a reef, uh, you can, you can really interact with this soundscape. And so you can commonly hear the snapping shrimp, uh, parrotfish chewing on coral is quite a common one that people will hear. They don't realize what they're hearing. Um, right. but I think, you know, if you spend enough time underwater, you really start to listen for these kind of sounds. Unfortunately, if you've had a boat go overhead, it can be quite jarring. Um, even if it's quite far away. And again, that's because sound travels so quickly underwater. So yeah, that's really where it all started for me was, I mean, I hate to date myself, but in 2007, uh, I was diving in Cambodia and this kind of really kicked everything off from there. Yeah, I'll date myself even, for, I'll carbon date myself compared to you, but uh, here's the street gunard. What's amazing about them is that when I was listening to it, I was just thinking of like, you know, science fiction movies, essentially, because a lot of them sound like creatures that we would think would be from a different planet. Mm-hmm. And that call you that, uh, that noise you just played is really interesting because they actually do that as a behavior when they are feeding. And so the thinking is that it's really like a kind of territorial going in to get a meal and, you know, a big flex almost before you take a bite and scurry away. And so it's a really good example of one of these very neat behavior specific, but important interactions that fishes have underwater where you're going to get that food and you give that, you know, that big push and then the other individuals back off and you get a lunch out of it. So again, it's really neat behavioral case. I'm back with Kieran Cox. There certainly aren't too many fish in the sea, Kieran Cox. I mean, I don't even know how many, um, but you haven't quite recorded all of them yet. I want to actually play the freshwater drum for you now. That's another ominous one. That was another, that's another one that sounded like get away from my food, but I'm not sure that's true. Yeah. So that's uh, something they do when they're associated with mating activities, but this is a really neat example. Um, Dr. Rodney Roundtree and Francis Juanez, who are collaborators on the Fish Sounds Project, and Francis was my PhD supervisor, they were able to map out the movement of this species through waterways um, in eastern United States. And the interesting thing about that is it's invasive. And in monitoring invasive species and charting their movement is one of the primary challenges in this space and anyone that knows anything about the uh, invasive species community is that it's causing a lot of havoc in natural systems. And so they propose this idea of, well, can we use the fact that this fish makes noise to follow its movement through waterways, indicate that it's reproducing and that it's establishing populations there and they were able to do it. And it's a really important thing to be monitoring because there's a lot of evidence to suggest it's gonna continue moving through these waterways. So. Yeah, that's a really uh, a really neat example of that passive acoustic monitoring applications of fish sounds, as well as kind of neat natural history. How do you capture the sounds? 
So these are hydrophones, uh, very similar okay. to the microphone that you're talking to right now. Um, but I'm, I mean, maybe not much more expensive than yours, but certainly more expensive than mine and uh, able to go underwater. Um, and so we can deploy these. Batteries have gotten very good, as has memory. And so these can go underwater for several weeks or months, um, much longer if needed. And then they're retrieved and identified from there. If we're really lucky, we get to put down a camera as well to help with identification. Because as you mentioned, there are many fish in the sea. There's about 34,000 fish. So we've got quite a few to go on the list. Here is the black spotted croak. Again, another interesting one and another kind of aggressive sounding one, if I may say. Mm -hmm. And a really great example of the power of local ecological knowledge on this topic. Um, right. The croakers, the drums, many of the species that we've talked about today, these were named arguably before we knew much about them as far as the scientific community uh, is concerned. And it speaks to the idea that fishers in these systems and people that live near these waterways have known for a long time that these things made drum sounds or that they made croaking sounds and they named them these common names as a result. And so it's this really neat interaction between the ecological knowledge that people have in an area and then the scientific community starting to do more deep dives and quantifications of this data. The Atlantic salmon. Yeah, what I wanted to hear. That was quick. Mm, yes. That was quick. Cool. That was jarring. Yeah, and quite an important yeah. one on our coast is obviously that's a yeah. that's a big ec economic species and on the east coast as well. So, you know, very the um, aquaculture industry has been very good about letting uh, these kind of obscure biologists into their farms to put in hydrophones and monitor these species. And they're very interested in the work from an application standpoint. So it's been great to uh, interact with those industries. I know you don't have a Pacific salmon, but do they sound alike? Uh, no, I don't think we have that data just yet. Um, it's certainly right. uh, because we don't farm them, it's much harder to get. Um, I did have a chat right. the other day on Twitter about someone with someone who interacts a lot with those species. And we're hoping to gather that data and really, you know, to anyone out there who's interested in this kind of data, we're going to make this website so that user profiles can be generated and people can start contributing their own data and really try to crowdsource and go fully, uh, fully open access and citizen science with this kind of, uh, this network. Which is such a great idea. It's called fishsounds.net. How many do you have up there now? How many recordings do you have more or less? So we know of about a thousand species that make noise. We have over 240 recordings. We're about to do another upload. So our team is just this phenomenal group um, who are exponentially better at these kind of things than I am. And they're about to make a big data push and get more data online. And then we're going to make user profiles so we can start pulling uh, more people in and more citizen scientists and experts on the topic. And so really the next year is going to be a big, exciting development stage for us. Kieran Cox, it has been absolutely fascinating. Congratulations on a fantastic website. You gave me hours of joy today. No problem at all. Thanks so much for having me on.